0: You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle or me at leadersandlegends.net. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Janet Allen, who on the list of people I have met in my time as an adult in Indianapolis, no one is kinder, sweeter, easier to laugh, and more fun to make laugh than Janet Allen. She recently announced her retirement as co-CEO at the Indiana Repertory Theater after nearly 40 years of service. Janet, thank you so much for coming on the podcast
1: welcome Robert no one has ever described me as sweet I'm probably the least sweet person you know but you're kind to pick that word
0: (laughs) you are you are a diabetes carrier because you are just sweet as pie I've never had an interaction with you that didn't involve a hug and didn't involve a, a really earnest and fun and sincere conversation first let me on behalf of the podcast congratulate you on your retirement and ask why after nearly 40 years have you decided to step away
1: Well, Robert, for all I think the right reasons, I'm ready for some new chapters of my life. And I very much believe the IRT is ready for a new chapter as well. So those are real good. Those are the right moments, you know, when it's time for a leader to recognize that it's time to retire. And I think that's an important aspect of leadership is knowing when it's time to step away and also to let the institution that you've worked for and with for a long time I'm just fly on to the next thing. So that's what I'm doing.
0: What drew you to the IRT in the first place?
1: That is such a wild question. The IRT has been my work and artistic home for virtually all of my career. I started at the IRT right out of graduate school at IU. I then took a little break and moved to New York and freelanced. And then I had the opportunity to come back to the IRT as an associate artistic director. And I was one of those Midwestern kids who thought as a theater maker, we had to spend some Time in New York. And I'm very glad I did, Robert. But boy, did I realize I was a Midwesterner when I lived in New York. (laughs) And very basic things really perplexed me about New York. I love to visit New York. I just got back from there. I saw Broadway shows for the first time in three years, which was so emotional. But I discovered that I was a Midwestern person. So the opportunity to come back to the IRT and serve it for another 35 years after I lived in New York was really a beautiful thing for me. It's very In our industry, Robert, now that people serve a single institution for as long as I have. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's really going to be a huge generational shift. I imagine it is in other fields, but it certainly is in the theater. These long tenures are not even in vogue or wanted anymore. So the change it up theory is a lot more beckoning, I think, to our field. And I get that. And I am so ready to make way for the next wave.
0: You mentioned you were a Midwestern girl. Did you have a chance to go to other theaters or arts organizations within the Midwest?
1: I did, but I grew up, I was born in Chicago, but I was raised in central Illinois where there was no professional theater, but there was university theater. So I actually started making theater in high school before I'd seen very much professional theater. I'd seen the occasional roadshow of a musical, but I knew musicals were not where I would probably settle in my own career of art making. And sure enough, I didn't. So, you know, I had, as many kids still have in the Midwest, very little exposure to professional arts of any kind. And that's one of the things that has mattered a lot to me, Robert, is making, is being part of making professional, art-going experiences for kids across the Midwest and adults too, of course, to be able to see those things right at home, in their home states.
0: One of the kind of coolest things that you can see downtown. I live in Fountain Square, so I ride my bike around downtown quite a bit. Is or driving past or walking is when you ramble by the IRT and <laughs> see all the yellow school buses parked yeah. on Washington Street. Yeah. To what you just said, what's Ooh. that like? How fun is that? Uh, I know Christmas Carol gets a lot of attention, but other plays as well. When the kids yeah. come in and you get a chance to talk with them, and they. get exposed to something, to your point, that is not very common.
1: Yeah, uh, it is one of the most sort of heart swelling and and rewarding parts of my job. The IRT is unlike a lot of its peer theaters, and we collective bargain with a group of 76 theaters around the country. And we are one of the few who do a very large percentage of our service to children. In fact, our mission is based upon 40% of our performance schedule being aimed at children. That's a huge percentage, Robert, for most of our peers. There are fully youth-serving theaters or family-serving theaters, but we are not that. We serve both. So I love looking at all the yellow school buses. I love the questions the kids ask. Sometimes it's as much a reward, it's more of a reward for me to listen to them talk in post-show discussions and ask questions as it is to listen to them watch the play. Because for so many kids, this is an awakening. It may be an awakening to a piece of history they never understood. It might be an awakening to somebody who they have learned to believe is the other, whether it is an other racially or religiously or economically. So we really think of that as a, as a mind-expanding experience for kids. It is particularly powerful for kids of color, even more so now, to see their stories on stage, not just white stories. So there's just so many ways in which the experience for kids is super deep. COVID shut down our service to kids for a year, a year and a half. It was horrible. It was the most horrible part of our uh, experience of COVID. This past season, uh, we did have students coming back and teachers were hungry to bring kids back to the theater, which we were really gratified by, but it'll be a slow build. It will because teachers like everybody else are still overwhelmed with trying to keep kids focused on curriculum and healthy. So it's going to be a long growth
0: back. You mentioned an awakening that may happen when school-age kids come to the IRT. Did you have that same awakening when Uh. you were a kid?
1: I did, but it was it was more kind of an awakening to a, the transportation of the form, Robert. My most memorable childhood theater experience was actually in an amateur theater in Chicago, where a friend of my father's was directing a production of Carousel, you know, big Rodgers and Hammerstein historic musical. And what is so memorable to me is I was sitting close to an aisle, and the actor playing Billy Bigelow, the lead, the, the Carney guy, walked down the aisle singing, and every hair on my body rose. I I guess I had no idea that performers could ever be that close to you or feel real, or that it would be that electric moment of somebody walking by you, singing in a character. I I was completely blown away. So yes, I did have some of those moments.
0: You mentioned your love of the arts. So as someone who can do literally nothing artistically. Oh, that's not true. Or mechanically. 'm trying to be think weird. or mo- automotively what are the what, I'm trying to run down the list of the <laughs> skills where I simply have nothing my kids always make fun of me because my tools remain shiny years and years after I buy them what was your particular talent in terms of art drawing dancing singing painting I'm gonna
1: first take you on that you can do nothing artful and this is a misprision of what art So I'm just going to school you for a minute, Robert. You're going to have to live with it.
0: I can appreciate it. Does that count as a skill?
1: Absolutely. But also, and this is where we, and I think this is a a kind of a Midwestern malaise or maybe an American one. I'm not sure. We're taught to believe that art has to be special and different, but actually art is all around you every single day. It's what you choose to put on in the morning. It's what you choose to cook or eat. It's what you choose to hang on your walls. It's what you choose to listen to or see or what movies you care about. All that is art. We have art around us all the time. It's just whether we recognize that or not. So, it's what you're attracted to on the street, what what books you read, all that stuff is art. So, I'm busy trying to break down those barriers of believing that art is rarefied and special. It's not. It's part of your life.
0: Is there a specialness though, when it comes to without fussing with you? because I wouldn't do that because then i would <laughs> yeah. I would get the I would get the beat down. and mm-hmm. I try not to get those on my own podcast. Is there a, something about a special talent that draws you mm. to a certain aspect of art?
1: Yeah, that wasn't uh, that wasn't a way true for me, but it was truer about what my parents led me to, Robert. OK, my mother had been a, a dancer as a kid and she so she took us to dance lessons. My father was a musician, a choir director and a bunch of stuff like that. So he wanted us to learn to play piano. So I had exposure in terms of a you know, musculature of, of trying to learn those things as a little kid long before I knew anything about theater. So those were ways in. I didn't stay in either of those forms. I am certainly not a dancer and I no longer play the piano, although I hope to remind myself in retirement, but (laughs) it was an exposure for me. I was taken by my parents because they cared about these things. So I sucked that up. You probably did that with your kids about lots of things.
0: You just, you know, basically uh, what I would say to that is after a certain period of time, I said to both of my kids, well, I have three children, but the two who lived with me at the time. I simply cannot take Radio Disney any longer. Yeah. I can't take Caillou or some god-awful kids cartoon. So I showed them Robin Hood with Errol Flynn and other movies, Star Wars and started listening to the Beatles and stuff like that. I'm like, it's time to go beyond all these things. And actually, it was Bastille Day, July 14th, 2013. I took my kids, Andrew and Anna, to go see Paul McCartney. Ah. And it was here in Indianapolis and it was eye-opening for them. How has music... So much of what the IRT does involves music one way or the other. Let's stick with that theme for just a second. How has music changed your life, shaped your life? Mm -hmm. And how has it helped propel the IRT into the place it has in Indianapolis's and Indiana's cultural arts pantheon?
1: um, That's a big one. I grew up listening to a lot of different kinds of music. My parents were very eclectic in their musical tastes, and they were luckily very open to all that early rock stuff. So there was no, oh, you can't listen to that. They listened to what we listened to very freely. The one musical tradition that I did not grow up with, and I'm sorry that I didn't, is opera. I have no affinity for opera. I don't know anything about it. I go from time to time, but it's it just wasn't early in my life. I think enough for me to feel like that was part of my chaptering in music. Uh, the reason that there's as the IR, as you probably know, the IRT does not do many musicals, and we don't because of ma- market saturation. There's two road roadhouses here that bring Broadway musicals in. The Tarkington. Oh my goodness. There's. So so many. Footlight, there's so many wonderful uh, avocational theaters, community theaters, as well as the Broadway series here, where you can see massive musicals. So more for us, it's been about plays infused with music in one way or another, sometimes played live, often not. And composers, uh, in fact, I've just gotten out of a day-long meeting with a composer. Composers are some of the most mysterious and prized artists to me. I get what it actor does because I work with them all the time. Uh, But lights and sound are big mysteries to me and so transporting emotionally that they are super key collaborators for us. I just, I love that part of the form. So we revere them and we employ them and we hope that they will lift the work that we're making always.
0: You are listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest is Janet Allen. She's the Margot Lacey Eccles Artistic Director of the Indiana Repertory Theater. She recently announced her retirement after nearly 40 years of service. She's a wonderful friend and a true Hoosier champion of the arts and beyond that, would you see a play like Hamilton that just becomes a phenomenon, a cultural phenomenon? Does that warm your heart and make you feel more optimistic about the future of the arts?
1: Absolutely. And I will say that, you know, some of the things that I heard about Hamilton before I ever saw it, Robert, first, thank you for those lovely compliments. They're very kind and very over the top. Um, The first things I heard, like hip hop, like I thought, I'm not going to get it. I'm not going to get it. This is not for my generation. But my children. My children, my two youngest children, said, oh, please, can't we go? And I, being a fairly parsimonious theater goer, said, we will go. This was years ago now, Robert. I don't even know how many. Uh, I said, I will go when you guys can find tickets for under $100. Well, that's, you know, at that point, they were going for three and 400 bucks on Broadway. But the Chicago sit-down of Hamilton was about to start. And sure enough, it took them not very long, you know, with their fingers dancing over the keyboards to find tickets for under a hundred dollars. So we, the four of us went, we had been listening to the music for a while. I begrudgingly, I will say, because I thought I'm not going to get this. And I very quickly started falling in love with the music. And of course, falling in love with my children's captivation by it. And my kids can now both sing. They're 22 and 25. My younger two can sing the whole score and have been able to for years. So I I will say I was utterly beguiled by it when I saw it i've seen it twice i saw the version on tv and loved it for very different reasons because it explodes the backstage of the production so beautifully i i it totally gives me hope robert because it's a it's a reinvention of musicals the same way hair was and rent was and spring awakening was all these in fact i just saw strange loop last week in new york which is the Tony award sweep winner of the year. It owes so much to Hamilton. And you just see these seeds of progress being handed off from composer and lyricist and book writer to the next. And it's, it's dreamy to see that.
0: Is Indianapolis's reputation nationwide, is Indianapolis's reputation as an arts community stronger now than it's ever been? And even if it isn't, How much has it changed or grown since you started at the IRT back when Bill Hudnut was mayor? (laughs)
1: <laughs> wow. That's a complicated question, Robert. I would say right now, it's not because COVID decimated the performing arts here and everywhere. So all of us are making less work than we did three years ago or 30 years ago. And I don't think we quite yet know what the long-term impact of performing arts is going to be yet, what the COVID long-term impact is. Obviously, it changed a lot of people's viewing tastes and also mechanisms. You know, it gave us all this, okay, we have to stay at home. We're going to consume a lot of media arts. And a lot of us got very comfortable doing that. So I think we're at a really perilous time to answer that question. There have been junctures when I've been worried about our national reputation. And when this may not be exactly what you were asking me, Robert, but I'm talking about reputation among artists. Okay. Uh, there have been times when those that reputation has been negatively Impacted by various pieces of legend that were viewed and are viewed as negative as um, negative to artists, and particularly negative to diverse people or queer people, or you know, a lot of our field is very open armed, and we have historically, and I mean, two thousand years of history, we have been a field where people who might be considered outs outside voices or outcasts. That's a very value laden word, but People who don't fit in, maybe, can make, can be heard, can have voice. Outcast, and so, not
0: through their actions, but through the attitudes of others.
1: That's excellent. Thank you for that context. Mm-hmm. So I will say that we work very hard and mostly very successfully at the IRT to make artists feel very welcome and comfortable in Indiana. And generally, we do pretty well about that. But, you know, the one time, and I'll, I'll, I'll just come out with this, the one time a person of color, and it's happened a lot more than one time, or a queer person gets Jeered at on the street in Indianapolis, it sends us back way back. So I'm very focused on those pieces of welcome and safety and belonging so that we can continue to bring top flight artists from all over this country here and have them be comfortable. And we say to them, We want you, we want to create conditions where you can make the best art of your careers here. And remembering, Robert, that you know, between 70 and 85%, depending on the year, of the artists who are working here do not live here because there's not enough. There's not a big enough professional theater community. This isn't a big enough pool for us to hire from.
0: You are listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn. And McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood caterpillar dealer should mention that patriarch and chairman whom we lost P.E. McAllister was such a mm-hmm. huge champion of the arts here in the it city sure was. Yeah. and is I'm sure hugely, hugely missed by not only you, yeah. Janet, and the IRT, but other arts organizations yeah. as well.
1: Absolutely and, a pioneer mm-hmm.
0: and had his own opera awards. Yes, he did. Typical yeah. of P.E. He, he fell in love with something and says, okay, now how can I be more supportive than anyone else? Yeah. God love him. Yeah. Is there a particular Hoosier leader and or legend you admire most?
1: Oh, gosh, that's a hard question, Robert. Okay, (laughs) I'll play Jeopardy with you. Living or dead?
0: Living someone you've ah. met, someone you've interacted with. I mean, obviously, I just mentioned to me the greatest man I ever met, and that's P.E. McAllister, but there are lots There's of others.
1: So, so, so many. I don't even know where to start. Well, I I'll should be... tell
0: Bon and I just tell you that everyone says Jim Morris, so you can say Jim Morris, or you can say someone other than Jim Morris <laughs> or Richard Luger.
1: I, I never met Richard Luger, sadly. I'm very sorry that I didn't because I admire him enormously. Actually, the first person that sprang to mind, I will say, is Bart Peterson. Bart was a huge champion for the arts when he was mayor, but there have been many. Bill Hudnut was certainly a big champion for the arts. Bill Hudnut saved the IRT when it was foundering in debt in the mid-80s. There have just been so many. But I also admire long-term arts leaders from this community. Community, so many of them. I, I don't Clues. Know. I, I don't, I didn't know, Alan. I will say you're talking more about funders than yeah. than anything. And I, I I will tell you one. Here's one that's very important in my life: Margot Eccles. Huge <laughs> arts champion that I am fortunate enough to have had in down my chair by her family. So so many people. Yeah.
0: The Lacys are wonderful, wonderful family. They are. Is there a particular Hoosier artist, Mm -hmm. mission performer whose career you followed or you think is particularly (laughs) worthy of our admiration? I mean, whether it's Florence Henderson or Bill Blass, or Hoagie Carmichael. and Baxter would probably come to mind for me. John Cougar-Mellican. I'm
1: a pretty big Hoagie Carmichael fan. It's the first play I worked on at the IRT. But I also think I'm a huge admirer of Booth Tarkington. I I don't know that she would be considered an artist, but she certainly was in many ways. May Wright Sewell, some of those uh, early suffragettes, those Indiana game changers. There's many history. I'm a Huge admirer of Madam Walker. So those aren't probably entirely people that would get easily contextualized as artists, but, oh, Madam CJ was certainly an artist. Certainly an
0: artist. Axl Rose? No. David Lee Roth? (laughs) No. No. John John
1: <laughs> Mellencamp, yes, yeah. No, how many, how many I times so have a rocker you... in that one. Yeah.
0: <laughs> How many times? David Letterman, Jane David Letterman. Folley,
1: I'll take those guys.
0: That's certainly yeah. that's certainly true. How how many times have you seen a Christmas Carol?
1: Seen it? Oh, thousands, Robert, thousands.
0: How long <laughs> have you all been putting it on?
1: Well, we've been doing it, it. We did it in two different pieces. We actually produced it from eighty to eighty four, and then we stopped then we started again in 96 and we've produced it it save for the first year of COVID. So save for winter 20 every year since 96. I have directed, I don't know. I don't know. A few of those, Robert, I don't know, maybe a handful. I don't really know how many I've directed. I've produced 27 of them. I've worked on all of them in one way or another. And I'll say that I fall in love with Dickens all over again every year. I'm not lying. <laughs> I'm not being cute with you. I, I really do. I really do.
0: When you go to the last time I saw a play in another theater, mm-hmm. I saw Phantom of the Opera in London. Okay. And the theater was, of course, beautiful. But when I looked at the production, I was struck not because the IRT has the same quality, but because for mm-hmm. some reason I expected the London performance to just be more. Because it's London, because it's Her Majesty's Theater and all that. When you go to see other plays, do you bring back (laughs) ideas and go, hey, I want to do that?
1: Absolutely. It's it's the main reason I've gone to the theater. And in fact, I'm really curious what going to the theater is going to feel like starting next July 1st, after I retire, I won't be looking at it the same way. And I'm, I'm fascinated by a number of things about that. First, I'm fascinated whether my eyes will just need a break from theater viewing. I don't know. And I'm I'm also fascinated to see just how I will metabolize this art form. I've dedicated a lot of my professional life to I, I I will be free of certain things, Robert. One of them is I count actors like crazy because actors are cost centers. So it's very related to budget. And I, I won't have to count actors anymore. I you, When I go to theater in London and I see some big, huge thing on the West End, what I'm most depressed about is how many actors they can afford to put on stage. And, and that's really hard for us to put, you know, 30 actors <laughs> on
0: stage.
1: So I want to stop being counting.
0: That's a fair point. That's a fair point. Is there a particular genre of play that is the most popular or lucrative for the IRT like we must yeah. do yes. this every year because if we don't do this we we sacrifice revenue and you know there's a fame they're, they're watching a an episode of law and order with my kids and it involved some murder at a of, of this and that <laughs> arts involved and one of the guys being interviewed by the cops said well detective there is no art without money <laughs> True, true that.
1: And in fact, murder (laughs) mysteries is one of the big genres that sells, Robert. And particularly murder mysteries that have a title that people recognize. So, you know, My kids and I cannot wait
0: to go to Clue. There you go. can't wait to go to Clue this year. That's
1: why it's on this bill, man. (laughs) So bring people back into the theater. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there are genres and murder mysteries is a big one. Title recognition things, adaptations of popular fiction do well. Certain kinds of name recognizable comedies do very well. So we think of those as the sort of blockbuster titles that we usually strive to have a couple or three of those on the bill that will bring people that may not be subscribers, or in fact, may never have been to the IRT before and say, oh, well, I've never been there, but I'll go see Clue, right? And that's a big piece of our programmatic engine. But in my view, those titles, and we strive to produce them beautifully, but those titles help us pick some lesser known stuff that we think people will really resonate with. And we also want to produce
0: that. Do you have a favorite mystery that's been put on by the IRT? No, Robert. I
1: don't trap don't have, was
0: great. I don't have a favorite Holmes and Watson. You yeah. don't? Don't have a favorite? I don't.
1: I don't. I, I'm such an egalitarian, and I've done this work for so long. I just... I really don't have favorites. I do love, I'm an Anglophile. You said that word before. So I do love British murder mystery. I love Sherlock Holmes stuff. So yeah, I guess that my edge might be the, the British murder mystery stuff. That's But I also love adaptations of all kinds of literature, American and British. So
0: how Go ahead. We're
1: opening with Sense and Sensibility, one of my favorite yeah. novels. Yeah, I saw that. So very girly, but I'm hoping some men are going to come see it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's not a bad first date.
1: Not at all. You have me Super laughing. I forgot. Super woman-pleasing forgot. <laughs> first date. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so the, the question I was going to ask is, how has the revitalization over the last 40 plus years. I've, I've said this on several podcasts. I was born in 67 here in Indianapolis. And when I was a kid, I only came downtown to watch, not Sense and Sensibility, but <laughs> Dick the Bruiser.
1: Ah. Okay. There was
0: really nothing else, a whole lot going on. But in the last several decades, all of downtown has, has been reborn. And how has this urban renaissance, certainly in the urban core in the mile square, helped the IRT?
1: Well, it, it certainly has, Robert, but I've also lived to see it both thrive and take some dips. And certainly from a retail perspective, now we're in a dip from COVID. Uh, there's still, in fact, I've had a friend visiting from Nashville who lived here for many years and likes to take long downtown walks because we live downtown as well. And he said, I was shocked at how much is still boarded up. And that's true. There's still, since COVID, we've still got some building back to do in the urban core. But long term, what the revitalization has done that I got to tell you, 40 years ago, I didn't think was ever going to happen and has beautifully is downtown, the burgeoning of downtown housing. It's like we can't build enough housing fast enough for the demand, which is amazing. So I love that. I think it gives all of us who are making arts downtown, and that certainly includes museums and Symphony and us and a bunch of the smaller theaters, um, as well as music venues, an opportunity to really start appealing to people who can walk and ride their bikes like you. And I think we've got work to do on that. But downtown housing, I think, is a great promise for the future of downtown.
0: How important is it, and please describe, for all the arts organizations, whether it's the symphony or the Palladium up in Carmel or other venues, other companies, to work together to get along because the dollars are scarce. And so while I'm sure there's some competition, especially for philanthropic dollars, there's also a real sense of collegiality, I'm guessing, about promoting the Indianapolis art scene in general to the benefit of everyone.
1: Yeah. I have never, outside of a handful of years in New York worked in another market, Robert. So I only understand this really from my peers around the country and other people who come to work here. The Indianapolis art scene is extremely collegial. We know each other. We support each other. We don't compete for dollars, uh, I think hardly at all, uh, in a negligible manner. When the Murat was about to come online now, what was that, 25 years ago probably? There was so much chatter about, oh my God, they're to ax out your market share. That's not how it works. How it works in almost every community, certainly every com- community that I've ever heard of, is more arts makes more boats rise, okay? And that's just how it is. It sounds very Pollyanna-ish, but the more th- opportunities there are for people to go to the theater, the more likely they are to look around at what other theater there is to go to. So we are extraordinarily collegial. And I will say during COVID, which is clearly a recurring theme of our, conversation here, Robert, just (laughs) we're still in it. We're still in it. And, uh, it's still very, very, very top of mind for me. Uh, The Arts Council of Indianapolis gathered us together in biweekly Zoom meetings to commiserate, to learn from one another, to figure out what best practices could be. And it was invaluable. And they also, at that point, um, even though they don't, it's not funded, it's not covered in their funding rubric, they invited a number of the Hamilton County folks like the Palladium to come into those conversations. Because that demarcation of funding is artificial. We share audiences with everything in Carmel. So to behave as if that happens on some other virtual plane is just silly. So I think we're very collegial. A lot of us talk all the time, even cross-disciplinarily. Could there be more collaboration? Sure, probably. And I, But I think this is a community in large part led by the values of the Lilly Endowment to say, we want you to work together. Tell us how you can work together. And that's had decades of impact. So, they've culture shaped about how we interact as well as fund us, which is unbelievable. Wonderful.
0: Just give a shout out to a former Leaders and Legends podcast guest, Julie Goodman, who runs the. Yay! council. Oh,
1: Julie saved us during COVID. Seriously. She and her staff just saved us.
0: Explain because I'm particularly enamored with Amanda Kingsbury, who is her comms person who yep. used to be at the Star Amanda. Yep. Besides being uh, an absolutely wonderful and and incredibly brilliant and fun person. She's also an East Sider living in Irvington.
1: Hey, hey, so means there you go.
0: I mean she's good people just by virtue of that. But how did Julie and her team and the council? And maybe let's talk a little bit about Kira Amstutz over at the Humanities Council because yeah. I know everybody came together. You mentioned Bart Peterson and Kira used to work for him. Talk a little yeah. bit how you all circled the wagons.
1: Well, Julie simply felt that we needed to be in conversation and that we could not wait until the bewilderment had passed to get there. So literally, I think in the end of March of 2020, when you know the city was utterly silent and closed down, she started convening us on Zoom. Now, the the arts and culture community is aided by the fact that we have this thing called um you know, cultural a uh, consortium of arts professionals. So where there was already a body that used to meet live that then she started convening on Zoom. And that platform form has now continued for more than two years. We meet less often, but we continue to meet. And uh, the Arts Council also hired a consultant. What's Sarah's last name? Oh God. Sarah's a, a local lawyer and consultant to, who Julie hired to be our COVID information expert collector. So we didn't all have to take time to do our own research. That was a massive gift. And then just talking about the opportunity to talk and the encouragement to talk frankly about what we were all encountering was amazing. And then, of course, it, it made us feel less isolated and alone. And then, when George Floyd was murdered, she very quickly built the conversations about race justice into the convening we were doing. And so those things existed in it, and still exist in a lot of parallel conversation and intersecting conversation about. What is it like to do this work when we all need to be convening on these issues? And it's been wonderful.
0: You mentioned something about the Indianapolis community coming together, both in terms of arts and, and other topics. Have there been particular Indianapolis artists or performers who you feel like are, the IRT has has really helped and does it give you a particular yeah. pride when you, when you have an, an artist yeah. or have a, a performer who went to North Central or went to Short Ridge or wherever and, and now here they're on the stage at the IRT?
1: It does, Robert, although I would say more often it's also transplanted Hoosiers, people who maybe came here to work and stayed for whatever reason or who went to college in Indiana and opted to stay. But there also are a bunch of native Hoosiers whose um, careers I think we have helped propel and who come to mind in that are Principally actors. I'm a little trying to name names because I'll leave people out, but we are really blessed with an incredibly beautiful. Albeit small core of professional actors in this town. And it's not really been a situation where wow, I sure wish that would have grown because there's not enough work to keep professional art professional theater artists working full time in Indianapolis in their craft. But these folks, and this also extends to designers and and a a very small handful of directors, have opted to stay here. Mm. That moves me a lot. People who opt to adopt or or stay in a community in which they were raised and give back to that community. That's not very common in our field because our field tends to collect people in bigger markets. You know, oh, I grew up in the Midwest. I'm going to go use Chicago as my base or New York as my base Mm -hmm. or LA as my base. But people who choose, you know, year in and year out to commit to making art for the community that they came up in just moves me every single day. (laughs) I interact with these folks and I interact with them every day. So they, does
0: I use I use Jacob's School of Music? Is that in any way helpful, or is there a much. relationship no. there?
1: No, because they're training for principally professional opera circuit, which we are not, of course. they I use musical theater program and theater program do, but not Jacobs so much. I mean, Jacobs is a gorgeous oasis for professional singers, <laughs> but it's principally singers who are being trained to go into the classical and opera
0: markets. We have reached the point on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Actually, I had one more question before we do the five questions. Have you ever, and I forgot this, but I want to ask it because my kids and I went to go see it years ago and just thought it was beyond cool. Do you ever have a play and you wonder or want to have a play or... or- do performance where we you're like, how in the hell are we going to do this?
1: Every and day. The reason,
0: and the reason I bring it up is when my kids and I came to see Dracula about nine or 10 years ago, we all we cared about is like, where are they going to get the blood? How are they going to stab okay. the count? It was, a, it was a wonderful play. I remember it like it was yesterday. It was really, really well done. But just in general, when it comes to quote unquote special effects and stuff like that, and do you actually get to help shred the grocery bags that create the snow for... <laughs>
1: No. <laughs> and I'm very glad we got to. We buy that snow in boxes from a distributor who distributes principally to department store window dressing. And but there's only one company who still does it. I'm <laughs> knocking on wood right now because if they go out of business forever, we are screwed. Um, every single day I'm involved in conversations about how in the hell are we going to do that. And that's part of what makes it really fun work is there's a challenge, not just once a month, but once a day. And we're lucky if it's only one. So we're constantly trying to figure out how can we make this cool idea that a director or designer had work? I just came from a four-hour design meeting with a bunch of people from Philly and New York, and they're throwing out ideas, and the production manager and I are sitting there going, wow, that is so cool. I hope we can figure out how to make that work. So every <laughs> single day, every single day, yeah.
0: There was one play, I forget, it was one of the mystery plays where the, that, the set was a house, and I saw it. It wasn't the mousetrap, I don't think. It wasn't Holmes and Watson. It was before then. It's the it's the play. It's the play where you invited people to come try on the costumes. My kids and I came, and I forget the name of it, but mm. I saw it three times. And okay. every time the curtain was parted, the yeah. crowd gasped.
1: Yeah, we love and that. We love I would that. bet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, here's another just real kicker of COVID. Our union regulations now will not allow artists, uh, audiences on stage. So you can't come touch the stuff. I, we hope that's going to change in the next few months, but it hasn't yet. And that's not our dreaming. It's um, union regulations trying to keep artists safe. Sure. Yeah. I love it when audiences gasp. And actually, we're going to put a curtain in a show this year for the first time in a while for that express purpose, is it's fun to get audiences to go, oh, Wow! So anytime we do the last show we did before COVID, which we didn't finish, we threw on to film was Murder on the Orient Express, which had a yeah. donut turntable, really cool interlocking turntable. Loved that thing. Audiences applauded every time that thing moved. We loved
0: it. my kids and I were supposed to go the night the night after it shut down. We yeah. missed we missed that one.
1: Well, I will I just gotta put a tiny plug in for WFYI. Those guys saved our bacon for Two years because they filmed everything we did and it allowed us to get it out on Broadway on demand and continue to make art, keep people employed, keep our audiences entertained. They were just huge, huge, great collaborators. Wonderful.
0: Again, more stories of Hoosiers Mm -hmm. and and residents of Indianapolis coming together. We have reached the point in the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask the same five questions. Of all of our guests, Janet Allen, are you ready?
1: I am, and I'm terrified. What are they?
0: You'll get an A, I promise. What was your first job?
1: Uh babysitting.
0: What was your first concert?
1: Three Dog Night.
0: Oh, that's strong. <laughs> that's good.
1: You don't even remember Three Dog Night. I'm so much older than you are, Robert.
0: <laughs> well, my brothers and sisters are all sister are all 10 years older than me. So yes, I remember stuff like that there on you go. track. There Three you dog go. night. Yeah. I want I want bell bottoms?
1: Oh God, yes. Love them. Don't <laughs> have any anymore, but <laughs> loved them back in the
0: day. Yeah. Did you take your pet rock?
1: No, I didn't do a pet rock.
0: If you could see, that's my favorite question of the five questions, just because the concerts are too funny. If you they could tell suggest, you a lot,
1: don't they? Yeah,
0: they do. They do, and and sometimes I actually know the answer because I know the person who, whom I'm interviewing, and so it's it makes it even more fun. But we've had some yeah. really good ones. Uh, my favorite remains Greg Ballard, who's first who was a huge champion of the arts, obviously, uh, who uh, his first concert was Sly and the Family Stone in Indiana yes! University. Yes,
1: well done. <laughs>
0: If you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you choose?
1: The Complete Works of Shakespeare. (laughs) Too true to form, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. There was a really good Shakespeare play put on by the IRT about seven years ago. Guess I had it had the dog and I can't think of the name two
1: of it. gentlemen of Verona
0: that is correct that is correct. the dog was the star of the show of course
1: well in some ways that dog steals those scenes for every time that play's been produced for two hundred years yeah
0: <laughs> more
1: than <laughs> more than two hundred four hundred yeah
0: if you could witness any event in history be there sure. in person as it happens, which event would you choose?
1: That one's really hard. I'm going to say the first time that Shakespeare's company played for Queen Elizabeth I.
0: If you could have dinner with anyone living today, living, I'll make it easy, living today, two hours off the record to talk about anything you want, whom would you choose?
1: Michelle Obama.
0: Well, her husband is the most popular answer.
1: I bet he is. And I almost went there, but I got to say that I'm, I'm a big fan of his, but I I think I would also love to talk to her about parenting daughters. I have two daughters.
0: With to joy, isn't it? It
1: is actually. It's it's not easy every day. <laughs> it's, it's yeah.
0: You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmont Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinleys Golden Ace Inn. And McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood caterpillar dealer. Our guest today has been Janet Allen. She is the Margot Lacey Eccles Artistic Director at the Indiana Repertory Theater. And after nearly 40 years of service, she is retiring after this season. I can tell you this there's no sweeter, no nicer, more (laughs) pleasant, more fun person I've ever met in this city. Janet, you've always been really kind to me. I can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast and enjoy your retirement. And I hope that you'll let me buy you some cinnamon toast at Patashu soon. You're on man, Robert.
1: I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, Please send us an email at Robert at VeteranStrategies.com. That's Robert at Veteranstrategies.com.
1: This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.